This group over here likes to talk. Tim Sealing, Zach Ostrander, look at them all over there. Blah, 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 blah. Welcome. I told the first service we have four grandkids. Wow. I looked at Nancy and I said, when we went to bed last, I had to go to bed early. I looked at Nancy and said, when I was doing my PhD, we had four kids at home. Is this what you did every day? And she looked at me and said, better late than never. It's about time. <laughs> oh, boy. They're wonderful. I love them to death. Let's see here. I want to talk about a couple of things on the back of the bulletin. First of all is put on the calendar September 6th through the 8th. How many of you went on our last all-church retreat? We do this every three years. Okay, yeah, a big chunk of you. Good. If you haven't been, it's a lot of fun. I don't know, we had 180, 200 or whatever. It's, we finished the amphitheater on Labor Day, and then the following weekend, rather than come back into the building, we closed the church, and we went away for an all-church retreat for Friday night, Saturday, and Sunday. Had a blast. It was so much fun. So I'd like to invite you all to come to that. So get that on your calendar now so you have that weekend reserved. The second thing is um, we have a lot of ministries going on. I, uh, I do a men's breakfast, uh, just a small group, kind of a discipleship group. And we're going to split up and add to it. And two of our elders on here uh, are leading group. One is Ryan right here. And the other one's Lauren Vosser. I don't see him right here. But if you'd like to join that, uh, call them. Get in touch with them. And um, join a, look at joining a group for you, for you guys that don't feel like you're connected in some way. This is a fun time. Get up early in the morning. Okay, let's stop and let's pray. Uh, holiness. We're in a, uh, a series about holiness. And I'm going to ask you every week that um, when I mention the word holiness or holy, does that make you feel burdened? Like, oh, I have more to do. Or does it make you picture an invitation into a deeper relationship with the Lord? That's what it's designed to do, is to help us understand who God is and His deep love for us. So let's just pray and uh, enjoy Him for a moment. Father, we do pause. We already know that you are present with us. I don't even have to ask for that. I already know that you smile at us. In fact, often you laugh at us. And uh, we're very thankful for that. So what we ask, Lord, today is that you would make your presence known to us. That you would help us to leave here knowing more about you, loving you a little more, understanding your covenants even more deeply, just being more aware of your presence with us. Guide us as we walk through this discussion this morning, your text, your son's name. Amen. Okay, when... A couple weeks ago, when we introduced the topic, we looked at First Peter, where he says, Be holy in all that you do. All right? And there we just started a very vague description of what holiness is. Whatever else it is, it means that we're very different now than what we used to be. That's what it means. We're very different now than what we used to be. So there came a day for most of you when your faith became real. You all of a sudden found yourself believing in this Lord, this one God that we talk about. And you begin to change and transform. You begin to be different. You begin to be more generous, more loving, more kind, more affectionate. And uh, it takes a long process, uh, especially for some of you. Uh, that was a joke, by the way. I was going to name a couple of people, but I thought Walter probably wouldn't like it if I highlighted him. And definitely Ryan. 
And Scott, no, no way. But we begin this journey, don't we? We begin to look differently than us. That's part of this whole holiness discussion is that we're different now than the way we used to be. So last week, we didn't spend any time. We didn't open the Bible at all last week. Got comments from people. I love it. Tells me you're paying attention. We didn't open the Bible at all. And that was by design because I wanted you to have this glimpse it's just a little tiny glimpse. But the Israelites at the base of Mount Sinai, they didn't have a Bible. There was no text that they could turn to and say, well, let's, let's look up Leviticus and see what God wants. They didn't, that's not the way it worked. And they didn't have it. They relied on their leaders, and God communicated to their leaders and, they, and who told them what the Lord wanted. So I wanted you to just walk through some of that and understand la, uh, the world around the ancient Israelites from that perspective without going into the scriptures. And what I said last week was, you know tons of information. One of the things I love about this congregation is that you are highly educated. The knowledge level here is very high. And so I don't always have to go to the scriptures to, to highlight or draw together a couple of theological principles. Today is going to be just the opposite. We're going to spend a lot of time with scripture verses up there. So don't try to keep up. Just read them with me. You can write them down and study them later. Because today we're asking the question, how does God's covenant, uh, how does it reveal the true nature of God? Specifically, how did the covenant, what we think of as the law, how did that reveal the true nature of God to the Israelites? Remember, you're a bunch of slaves and you're out in the wilderness and you know very little. You know almost nothing except how to make bricks. And you know the Egyptian practices. That's what you know. So how did God, when he began to speak, how did he begin to reveal this sense of holiness, this sense of otherness? And how does it become an invitation? I've had several people say to me, I've never heard of holiness from the perspective of an invitation. Holiness is an invitation into a deeper walk with an amazing God. That's what it is. We've somehow managed to communicate that it's all about the rules and the laws. And they're heavy. And they're burdensome. And they're rigid. And they're flexible. And if you sin, watch out. That's kind of how we think about it. But that's not what's really behind the concept of holiness. And that's what we have to work our way through. Okay. At Mount Sinai, they come out of Egypt. And they're going to go to the promised land. But they make a little detour. They make a little detour to the base of Mount Sinai. Why'd they do that? God has to do business with them. Several things. We've already mentioned some in the series. Number one is he was to them. They'd seen the plagues, but they didn't know anything about this God. He'd been silent for over 400 years. We're going to see in just a moment why that was true. So he was silent. They didn't know anything about this God. They didn't have a Bible to go to. They, didn't, they simply didn't have any information. And so all of a sudden, this God appears out of nowhere and begins, uh, he, he performs the ten plagues, uh, challenges the Egyptian gods because those ten plagues are against the ten, ten of the major gods of Egypt. So they'd seen his power, but they didn't know what that meant. So he takes them to Sinai and parks them here for a little while to do business with them. So Exodus 19, then Moses went up to God. And the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. 
Now, if you obey me fully and keep my commandments, then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Go ahead and go to the next slide. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So Moses went back and summoned the elders of the people and set before them all the words the Lord had commanded him to speak. The people all responded together, we will do everything the Lord has said. So Moses brought the answer back to the Lord. Um, Beginning with um, this experience right here at Sinai, this is the first time they've actually heard from the Lord. If you read the beginning of the chapter, it says that the early part of the second month or the third month, so they've only been out two, two and a half months out of Egypt. And now they're planted in this desert, this uh, valley, if you will, at the base of Mount Sinai. And God's beginning to speak to them with these opening words that we just read. He just completely revolutionized their entire worldview, their entire understanding of deity the divine nature of the gods, all of that. How did he do that? The gods never spoke. And here God spoke. If we had read the rest of the chapter in Exodus 19, you would have seen, uh, you would have felt the experience of them being at the base of Mount Sinai. The mountain shook. There's light under. There's this really loud, uh, I mean, really thick smoke surrounding them. So in Exodus 19, they're standing right at the base of the mountain, but God said, don't touch the mountain or you'll die because it's holy. And so he terrifies them. You have this trumpet blaring so loudly. They're, they're doing this. In Exodus 20, Moses goes to get the people. Now they're all across the valley at the other side of the mountain. It's one of the passages that just makes me laugh how God terrifies people and they bolt and they run. So he goes after them. Hey, hey, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. This, that's what he says. Do not be afraid. That's one of the oft-repeated verses, uh, statements in the Bible. Do not be afraid. We have it all throughout there. Do not be afraid. Basically, this God who you just experienced did that on purpose to put his fear in you so that you would make a commitment, basically. It's another way of saying our God is bigger than your God. They didn't yet know that he was the only God, but what they did know, starting with the ten plagues, is that whoever this God is, whoever he is, He is powerful beyond all belief. And so this made them ask the question, who is this God? They had never had to ask that question before because the gods had never spoken, much less shook the mountain. Who is this God? That's a question you should all ask. I remember the first time consciously asking the question. I was with my first wife when she died and her heart stopped. I was holding her. And of course... I had the the flood of loneliness and the tears. But then something else happened. Right there in that first 30 seconds, I looked out the window and I said, man, I I just prayed nonstop for days. I didn't leave her side. And that fast, he said no. And he took away from me the most important person to me in the world. You know what question floated to the surface? It wasn't anger. It wasn't why. It was, who is this God? I don't know him very well. I thought I did, but I don't. I don't know him very well. That he could just do that. 
steadfast. That's what this experience did to the Israelites. Who is this God that we heard about and we have now heard from and seen with our own eyes? That's what happens. But it wasn't until he gives the covenant and the beginning was what we just read. You can't read the whole thing because it's most of the Pentateuch. But we are going to explain it to you. It wasn't until he began this covenant that he began to teach these group of slaves that he, he is the only one in existence who can appropriately and rightly be called holy. Remember the word holy. What it meant in the ancient world, we looked at that last week in great detail. What it meant in the ancient world was not about morality. It wasn't about a pure character. It was about somebody that was different and more powerful than me. That you were different than us. In fact, I read to, uh, I read to the staff in Hosea is the only place where the word holy women occurs and is translated uh, shrine prostitutes. The prostitutes were called holy women because they didn't have the concept of purity and rightness. They were just, they had a different role than we have. And so that's what they're called. And so the trans, your translations talk about the shrine prostitutes. So God is in the process of not only redefining the concept of holiness, but he's beginning to do it in a way that said he is the only one that can properly be called holy. Look at all that he's done. That's what the story is all about. So what we learn from this detour to Mount Sinai is that God's ultimate purpose was not the promised land. That's not it at all. These people hadn't known anything about the promised land yet. They hadn't been told. It's not about the promised land. It's about being invited into a personal relationship with the one true God who created everything. That's what this detour is all about. So they start on their journey. He gives them a detour to Sinai where he makes them camp for a little while. And then he begins to tell them the stories of creation, giving the Ten Commandments, talking about the tabernacle, God living in his presence, all of that stuff. He begins to explain all that right here in this one setting. Almost all of Exodus, Numbers, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, not Deuteronomy, but the other three occur right here. They're all given right here at this point in time. So they're just camped and they're learning all about this new God. And he's beginning to tell them he's the only one that could be called holy. He's the only one. They didn't know that he was the only God yet. He hadn't told them that. It hadn't been clear. So what does this covenant, what we think of as the law, what does it reveal to us about God? That's the question I want to wrestle with today. Typically, when I mention the law, you think of these terms, commands, rules, regulations. It's inflexible, grace, all of that. But again, I'm going to remind you, nobody in the Bible said that. David said, I love your law. Teach me your precepts. Paul calls it holy, right, perfect, good. John, in the Gospel of John, calls it grace. So where on earth did they get all these terms for when we have the opposite viewpoint? I believe that's a disservice that we have done to many of you to teach you the wrong view of the law. So how does this law, this covenant, reveal the true nature of God? Well, the very first character quality it reveals is grace. It's grace. All of the covenants in, in the scriptures, everyone reveals God's grace. Everyone starts with God making the initiation and revealing his grace. Let me just give you some examples. Noah, 
You know the story of Noah and the flood. Long before the experience at Sinai, long before, God decides, he looks over the earth and he sees everything is evil. Everyone is evil. And every heart is inclined to evil. But he sees one person trying to do the right thing. And he said, there's, there's my man, Noah. And if you read the Genesis 6, 8, what it says is he looked with favor. That's an English translation for the Hebrew word for grace. He looked down on Noah and, and expressed grace. He saw, he looked with his own eyes and said, grace. Here's a man trying to do it right. And so he rescued him and his family. Abraham. God freely binds himself to Abraham again and again without any initiation on Abraham's part. God made a promise to Abraham that he would bless him, and Abraham believed him. Genesis 5. I mean 15, excuse me. He took him outside and said, now remember, God, God has taken Abraham, and he said, look up at the stars. See if you can count them. See if you can. Then he said to him, that's how your offspring is going to be. This is a way in the ancient world of saying you are going to be blessed beyond you can possibly imagine. Because prodigy, children, was a way of showing blessing. That's what God said to him. So Abraham believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. He looked down, he looked down and said, there's a man who's trying to do it the right way. I'm going to show grace to this man. So then God bound himself through the means of covenant. This is the right after this. So Abraham, Abraham asked the question. Abraham said, okay, well, God, how do I know that I can believe you? How do I know you're going to do this? Now remember, they don't have the sense that, that there's only one God at this point, as far as we can tell. So how do I know you're going to be able to do this? What if there's a more powerful God? So Abraham brought all these animals. He's going to enter into a covenant. He cut them in two and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he didn't cut in two. Then the birds of prey came down in the carcasses, but Adam drove them away. Okay, in the ancient world, hang on to that verse just for a minute. When they wanted to make a covenant, when we want to make a covenant, we call it a contract. You're going to sell me a car? Find a piece of paper. You don't give me the car, I give you my money, you take it, I take you to court. That's not the way they did it. It's not the way they thought. They would take animals and they would cut the animals in half and they would lay the animals parallel to each other. And the two would walk down between the animals, shake hands basically and say, this is what's going to happen to either of us if we don't keep the covenant. We will be slaughtered like these animals. Okay? That's the basic practice in the ancient Near East. So, this is Abraham lays, does what God says. He lays all the... He lays all the animals out. And what do you think is supposed to happen? Abraham walked down between the animals, right? But here's what happens. As the sun was setting, Abraham fell into a deep sleep and a thick and dreadful darkness. You could, you could translate it terrifying. He's terrified came over him. Then the Lord said to him, know for certain that 400 years, for 400 years, your descendants will be strangers in a country, not their own. So he's telling them that they're going to go to Egypt and they're going to be alone for 400 years. They will be enslaved and they will be mistreated. Go to the next verse. 
But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. Keep going. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking firepot, a, a cauldron of incense, if you will, had, uh, and, a fi- and a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said to your descendants, I will give this land from the Wadi of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates. Okay, God did not ask Moses to walk, I mean, Abraham to walk down the middle of this. He did it himself. What does it mean? I'm going to read to you a little section out of John Oswald again who addresses this. The all but incredible nature of this grace is made plain in the vision to Abraham and recorded in Genesis 15, what we just read. Abraham has believed God's promise that he will give Abraham more descendants than stars in the sky or sand on the seashore. We read that in verse 6. Then God seals that promise with a vision. He commands Abraham to slaughter certain birds and animals and to divide the carcasses in half. Abraham then falls into a deep sleep in which horror, terrifying horror, comes upon him. This is because he is in the presence of the what scholars call the mysterious tremendum. It's, it's so tremendous and mysterious that we can't even make sense of what it means to walk into God's presence. And this is what happens. So this is confirmed by the symbols of holiness, which Abraham sees in his vision, an incense censer and a torch. This is the very presence of God himself. But what does this holy one do? He passes between the pieces of the animals. What's the significance of this? When a person wished to seal, uh, when people, two people wished to seal a covenant, they walked between the halves of a sacrificed animal's body and asked God or the gods to do the same thing to them if they ever broke the covenant. This is what God was doing here. He was committing himself to Abraham with the most binding oath possible in Abraham's world. He was cursing himself by himself if he should ever fail to keep his promise. It's the most powerful way of making a covenant. Now, what had Abraham ever done for God? Nothing. What had Noah ever done? Nothing. God's grace always precedes, always initiates, God blessed him of his own free will and bound himself to Abraham. By the time we get to Mount Sinai, this is exactly what happened with Moses. He's the third example. He's walking along and sees the burning bush. What had Moses done for God? Nothing. But God is inviting his people into the deliverance from slavery to experience him in a different way. That's called grace. So the first thing we see about every covenant in the Old Testament is that it reveals grace. The gracious God who always initiates toward us. He never waits for us to initiate toward him, ever. There's no single example in scriptures from Genesis to Revelation. Even when it appears that they are, 
Like the Israelite slaves, 400 years later, they call out to God. And he says, I've heard their groaning. I've come down to rescue them. Well, we now know 400 years earlier, he made that happen to create that heart. God is an initiatory God. Pause just for a second. Think about the New Testament. Love one another, not be loved by one another. Forgive one another, not be forgiven by one another. Carry one another's burdens, not have your burdens carried by one another. Fifty-seven times Paul uses that phrase, one another. And every time we are to initiate in the lives of people. In our culture, we're not very good at that. We're taught to wait until people initiate with us. And then we get frustrated when they don't. We are to be people like God. We are to initiate. That's what God does. In every single case. Okay. So the first character quality is grace. The second one is ethical righteousness. The content of the covenant this demonstrates this ethical character of God. Yeah, the content does have rules and regulations. There's no question about that. Uh, he does want us to act a certain way. Why? What did he say in Exodus 19? If you obey my commands fully, I will make you a holy nation, a priest, a priesthood. A holy nation, what does that mean? That means that all these rules that we're going to look at in a general sense are making the nation of Israel different than the surrounding nations. So he gives them a command, one, and they look a little different than the Canaanites. He gives them a second command and they look a little different than the Canaanites, a little more. He gives them a third command and every command moves them further away from the practices of the ancient world. We saw that a couple of weeks ago when we looked at... Um, how we punish adults. We looked at uh, briefly the adult uh, punishment practices of the Assyrians and the Egyptians. Let me remind you just in summary. In Assyria and Egypt, they could beat people with a rod, a baseball bat, up to 200 times on the back, not the buttocks, on the back, and create up to five open wounds depending on what the nature of the crime was. Also, let me remind you that we don't have any example of how many times a husband, no limits on how a husband could be a wife. Wow, is that brutal? That's beyond brutal. That's a world that we know nothing about. And then you read Deuteronomy 25, and God says, you're limited to 40 lashes. So he takes this brutality of this ancient world, and he narrows it down and says, you're limited to 40 lashes. Would that be refreshing to you? It would be, wouldn't it? The law was always seen as refreshing, redemptive, protective, because they're not like the other nations. The brutality was amazing. Not only that, but it says if you if you beat your uh, if you beat your fellow Israelite more than forty, you'll show you'll you'll begin to experience contempt. So he's also introducing human dignity into the equation. None of the other nations did that. So every piece of the law, every aspect of the law had this quality about it. Every one. If you lived back then and you began to read these over 600 commands, you're not going to be like us going, oh, really? You're going to say, wow, what a God we serve. This is amazing. Is that making sense to you? That the law, by definition, by nature, is redemptive? especially when compared to the other nations. And so he says, I'm going to make you a holy nation. You're going to look different than all the other nations. That's what holiness means. But then he says in Exodus 19, I'm going to make you a kingdom of priests. Priests, you meet here on behalf of who? All these other nations who are going to come to you. 
They're going to come and say, how come your marriages are better? How come you don't have the same diseases? Because m- many of the laws were related to being to related to hygiene. How come you are a healthier people than we are? Now they get to act as priests for all these nations that would come. That was the intent. Okay? So we're beginning to see God's ethical righteousness shine through. He cares how we are treated. Humans. Now, when you compare this with all of the ancient gods around them, this is profound. Stunning. It's beyond belief. In the Exodus 19 passage, which we read at the beginning of the Sinai experience, remember, God is addressing Israelite slaves after he has graciously delivered them. That's the pattern we see. God rescues you, and then he begins to transform you. He doesn't give you a list of rules to come to him. That's not the way it works. He rescues you, redeems you, regenerates you, gives you life, and then begins to teach you so that you'll become a holy people. That's what he's doing. Then he invites them into this personal and intimate relationship with him. That's why I said, Holiness is an invitation. It's not a rule book. He created us to be like Him. He is. We are happiest. We are most fulfilled when we are living holy lives. That's what we're made for. Okay, the very structure of the covenant reveals this holiness of God. His whole, this character of his. Now, most of you have probably read Leviticus or Numbers or you've read the sacrifices or the purity commands. You read all those. And if you manage to stay awake, right, that was your only time you read them. I don't mind many people reading, find many people reading Numbers twice. And yet, if you understood Numbers with the eyes that I see, you'd read it often. It is incredible. Okay, this is the covenant right here. You're looking at it. This is a well-known structure that they would have understood. It's followed this structure. They get it. So let me just say just a brief word. The very first one is, now you notice we're going from Exodus 19 to Numbers 10. That's pretty much the whole, all the Pentateuch except Deuteronomy. All of this was given to them right here while they're camped at Mount Sinai. And they're learning about this new God. They're slaves, and he's giving them laws and rules that they understood. And as they heard them one at a time, they could see how this God is redeeming them. Okay? You can't see it very well because it's not our world. So the book of the covenant. Here God outlines the basic terms of the relationship with Israel. See it? Exodus 19 to 24. Okay, so you finally meet God for the first time. He introduces himself. He's alive. He's speaking. He's demonstrating power. He's overturning all of the pantheon of the Egyptians. Don't you want to know about him? You just crossed through the Red Sea and watched the Israelites, the Egyptians drown. I mean, he finally camps and aren't, aren't you curious as slaves? Wow, who is this God? So he lays out the basic rules of the covenant right up front with language they understood. They're going, okay, everything God says we will do. They're binding themselves the same as God in a covenant. What's the punishment if they don't obey it? Right? They're so excited. They bind themselves. 
Then you have Exodus 25 to 40, the account of the tabernacle. This is demonstrating to them God wants to live in their presence. That's what the tabernacle is all about. And it gives you all these details when you read it. And you're going, oh, really? Gold this, gold that, curtain this the size. How many cubits this, blah, blah, blah. But what it's telling you is that God is preparing his house in our midst so that we would live with him. He wants, our God wants to live with us. He wants to be with us. This is talking about, he's, he's communicating to them, build me a house too because I want to be present with you. Can you imagine for a second not having God present with us? They didn't know that was a, could be a reality. And so all these rules on the tabernacle are all about our God's going to live with us. He's going to be in our presence with us. Everywhere we go, He's going to go with us. We don't have to worry. They'd already seen the mountain shake. Our God's bigger than your God's. You have nothing to be afraid of. Then when you get to Leviticus 1 to 17, this is the manual. This is called the manual of worship. These 17 chapters. This is, lays out the basic rituals of holiness, sacrifices, ordination of priests, rituals of atonement, all of that. They no longer had to guess like all the nations. God says, when you sin, go offer a sacrifice. They didn't have to guess. They didn't have to worry. They could relax. No wonder this, they called these good, these rules. Then you get to Leviticus 18. This is called the holiness code. This is where the practices of everyday life are addressed and how important they are in our lives. Yes, at one level, they're making us holy, i.e. they're making us different than the other nations, but God's also protecting us and introducing hygiene issues and things that they wouldn't have known. They're slaves. How to stay clean. They weren't doctors. They weren't like what they had back in Egypt. These are slaves. And God's telling them, when you have a certain kind of sore, do this. When you have a certain something appear on the skin, do this. Okay? When you become unclean, do this. Now we read those and we're going... But they're reading it going, oh, this is how we respond when we're sick or when something's happening. And then you get to Numbers chapter 1 and you have the preparations for the departure. This prepares this new nation to depart and journey with God. This includes the dedication of the temple and the observance of Passover. So they dedicate the temple. God's presence, His glory fills the temple. The priests can't even get close to it. They, they can't go inside. His presence is so tangible and real. In the ancient world, they had a concrete statue of a God that symbolized that God's here. Not with our God. He fills the tabernacle and they can't even get in it. His presence is very real. You're beginning to see why they love the law? Totally revamped their entire worldview. Their understanding in this ancient world. And then God says, oh, by the way, let's, uh, let's create a festival. We'll call it Passover because I passed over your, your families in Egypt. And I didn't kill any of your firstborn. Let's remember this every single year. That's tied to the Day of Atonement. So continual atonement and remembrance was a part of their journey. Okay. Couple summarizing thoughts about this. The reason for the covenant is so that his people might live with him. The sacrificial system explains how a sinful people can live in the presence of God. Now remember, the sacrifices were for a people who were already in a relationship with God. It wasn't a means to enter the relationship. 
It was a means to correct the relationship when it gets broken. That's what sacrifices are for. Now you think about offering spiritual sacrifices to the Lord in the New Testament. That's the way we repair our, our community. Praise, thanksgiving, all the things listed. We are already in a relationship with God. This is why Peter exclaims, you must be holy in everything that you do. That one statement captures the entire covenant from Exodus 19 to Numbers 10. We should be holy in all we do. I shouldn't have to tell you, don't cheat on your taxes. We don't need the law. That's the new covenant. The law is put right here. I shouldn't have to tell you to take shortcuts. I shouldn't have to tell you to avoid sexual relationships outside of marriage or before marriage. I shouldn't have to tell you that. It's put in right here. I shouldn't have to tell you to act with integrity in what you do. That's put in right here. That's the new covenant. They needed to know it. But we have it put here. Right here. He wrote these laws up on our heart. The final character quality, this is a short one, is God's generosity. His love, his faithfulness. God talked about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. When he said, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that's just not routine stuff to bore you. He's communicating a theological truth. I am the God of the living, not the dead. Otherwise, he would say, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am the God of Isaac and Jacob. We live on even when we die. That's why we have a hope for eternity. But he goes further than that. Look in Exodus 20. I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations. Okay, pause. Here's the verse we always quote. He passes or punishes the children for the sin of the parents for three to four generations. We should be afraid of God. We should respect him highly. Well, we should respect him highly. I'm not arguing that. But what we've done is we have failed to communicate the whole picture. This is one sentence. Look at the second half of the sentence. He shows love not to a thousand, but to thousands. He repeats it in Deuteronomy to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. That's why I say we have, we have made sin idolatry. We've raised it to the level that it carries all the power. No, no, no. You all know what carries power in Scripture is, a, is the most generous God you could ever imagine and beyond. That's why I have the view of sin that I have. Okay, great, you're sinning. What, tell me what the sin is so I know how it's impacting you. Now let's get past it. Let's get back to what's good. This is how I view sin. <laughs> A little bit of transparency. Sorry, Nance. <laughs> Apologizing to my wife. She's already grimacing. So we're walking down the mall at Christmas time. And she says to me, did you see that young girl? What she's wearing? I have my arm in her arm. I turn around and I said, oh, no, I was looking at her mom. <laughs> Nancy elbows me. And then she laughs and gives me a hug. She goes, I just love you because you're so normal. You know? That's what it's like with God. Don't give it more power than that. Even when I'm sinning, I am aware of God's presence with me and not his condemnation or judgment, but his deep love. Because 
He's trying to tell them that maybe, and he's communicating their language, maybe I communicate, I, I punish for three generations, but I show grace for thousands of generations. That's the God that we serve. That's the God that we serve. You have nothing to be afraid of. All the way back to Mount Sinai, our God is bigger than anything this world has to offer. Anything. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. When you sin, just just get ready for the elbow. Okay? <laughs> yeah, God, you're right. That's why I've said to many of you over coffee, yeah, the sin to me is not important. Other than I want to know the impact. The big thing is, what do you need to get right? Let's get back. Let's get back on the journey. So yeah, God's going to elbow you. Of course he is, just like you do as parents. By the way, with your children, especially if they're adult children, do you show them thousands of generations of love versus three? Or are you known more for your rules? That's why the covenant reveals the very character of God. It tells us. Holiness is an invitation. Okay, what do we learn from all this? He is not like the other gods. He's not there to terrify you. He's there to invite you. He longs to be with you. And he doesn't mind giving you an elbow in the ribs when you're messing up. That's what it's about. It's not about a series of laws. That's not it. It's about learning who this holy God is because we are happiest when we share that holiness that he gives us. When we live the lives that he, he wants us to live, that's when we are happiness, happiest. Every other shortcut of Satan is a perception of happiness, but it's not true. We are happiest when we share his holiness. Holiness is an invitation into a personal walk with the Lord. Don't be afraid of the Mosaic Law of the Covenant. It is fabulous. Father, thank you for your goodness. I don't even know how else to say it other than that. We are glad that you are God. And we love learning about you. Thank you for inviting us into that delightful, intimate, personal relationship with you. And thank you that when we do sin and you elbow us in the ribs, when we turn back to you, all we find is grace, mercy, and help, Hebrews says. Thank you for that. Thank you for being so gracious to us. In your son's name, amen.